This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week, two spectacular human beings, Kara Shimborski. Hey. And Nick White. Hey. Thank you both for joining me this week. I'm really excited to talk about today's topic where we have a special guest. He's not here for the first half, but he will be here for the second half. But before we get into all of that, let me ask the question I ask every single week. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Nick. Well, because I'm old, when anyone asks me that question, it inevitably just turns into an answer about the weather. Right, right. Uh, And uh, it was raining cats and dogs last night in Michigan, so that was nice. It's an ample opportunity for things to ice over tonight. I don't think they're supposed to. Um, (laughs) Things are just fucking insane. The primary concern of the Midwestern. Yeah, it's it's Michigan's been so bad. Like, uh, I don't even like I have three weather apps. God, I need a rocking chair on my porch and I need to, uh, you know, send petty notes to the neighbors who don't cut their grass evenly or something like that. It's 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 desperately needed. Nick is 67 Um, and lives in the Midwest, everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Beyond that, um. I've I've been playing uh, some Banner Saga lately, which is a great sort of kind of Viking epic turn-based um, strategy game with a really strong narrative element, and it forces you to make all sorts of decisions that a decisive leader would handle well, um, which of course means that this game is a fucking nightmare. Um, last night I screwed up massively and ended up uh, with a couple people tumbling off a cliff when I had sent them to recover my uh, wagon that had the treasure in it, and oh, I was no. determined to get it, and, and a couple people. Uh, it was bad, so don't, you know, I'm not running for president is what I'm saying. Like, I'm not, don't put me in those positions. <laughs> in terms of what I read, uh, recently I decided that I was going to read Doom Patrol Volume 2, this is written by Gerard Way, art by Nick Darrington, Tom Fowler, and Michael Allred. Colors by uh, Tamra Bonvalain and Laura Allred. And letters by Todd Klein. And I read the first volume of this Doom Patrol, and I should clarify, this is obviously the uh, 2016 Young Animal version. I read the first volume about half a year ago, and I thought a reread... Um, of the first volume would put me in a better position to comprehend the follow-up. Um, I neglected to realize that volume one might not make much more sense to me this time than it did the first time. And <laughs> I forgot that this was the comic that had an entire world existing in a hero. Right. Um, as well as a sentient amusement park, which was previously an equally self-aware brick as well as a self-aware street. And that this Ascension amusement park existed inside of a cabaret, which existed inside of an ambulance, which had made enemies that were made up largely of vector graphics. Sure, sure. Um, Oh, and uh, that an intergalactic fast food chain sought to tap into said ambulance's ability for near-infinite creation of creatures to create a near-infinite meat supply for their business. Um, what? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is this is why rereading volume one, like when I finished it, I was like, I'm I'm nowhere better off for having done this. I'm royally fucked. Like volume two, whatever. <laughs> As for two, um, I absolutely love the beginning, which has a one off issue um 
the the issue drawn and, and colored by the All Reds, where the chief, he's like the leader of the Doom Patrol, I think for those of you who only watch the show, or that's largely your entry point to the show, I believe he's a part of it, and I believe he, he holds that role within... He is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's Niles Calder, and he's the previous leader of the Doom Patrol with the new version, and he's finally brought to the front of the book after being oddly sidelined for volume one. We had these weird one-off pages in volume one where it's like, Hey, Niles Calder, what are you up to? And it's just like a four, um, a four panel or a six panel, just a layout of him doing things like playing music on a keyboard or going for a hot air balloon, um, ride those things. And we were like, what is this about? This is so bizarre. And, so finally in volume two at the beginning, we find him spying on them in a food court (laughs) and he announces that he's quote, come to learn that the doom patrol has reformed and to his understanding lacks proper leadership. Uh, He wants to return them to their former glory, which of course is hilarious considering that I don't know if this is true in all versions of the doom patrol, but in this version, he actually instigated the accidents that made them what they are. Hey, no spoilers for doom patrol. I'm still in the middle of rereading that right now, like the original and the new one. Yeah, so it's 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 interesting because the relationship bears an interesting resemblance to the leader slash member relationship in Umbrella Academy between sure. the kids and their quote unquote dad. So I found that interesting. Um, just otherwise, briefly, this volume largely surrounds a new consumer product called shit. Although more appropriately, the way this book gets around saying shit all of the time is that it's technically it's dollar sign, pound sign, exclamation point plus. Right. So it's the classic <laughs> 12 year old way to say that word. Exactly. And it's a uh, an animal free, all natural food additive that instantly makes anything you put it on extra delicious and good for you. Except, oh, it also has reality bending properties for those who consume it. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's insane, but I feel like it's approachably insane. The moment you realize that things are just not going to make sense, I think you can sort of relax and enjoy it for what it is, where I feel like in some ways Grant Morrison's just continues to be really, really vexing and confusing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay. That's okay. that's what I've been reading. Um, what about you, Kara? Oh, I'm doing great. I have been sleeping through the night. My jet lag from my trip has mostly abated. Uh, my my ankle is a little more tolerable to hobble on, which is great. I have drunk the California Kool Aid and started doing yoga every day and subscribed to like a yoga clothing membership thing. So I'll be neck deep in leggings sometime soon. <laughs> and uh, I've been, I started, I, okay, so after like 10 years of watching Game of Thrones, I finally succumbed and got an HBO subscription. No longer am I like borrowing logins from other people. I right. have my own for the final season. So as a consequence, I'm re-watching the series for the first time. So I've I've seen all the episodes, but as they came out. So I haven't seen season one since it aired. Right. Except I finished it this last week, and my mind is blown by how much foreshadowing and name-dropping and references and, like, semi-spoilers that they have even in the first four episodes. Like, the level of detail that went into this show is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And I am loving my rewatch because they mention a lot of stuff that you don't find out about really in depth for another like four seasons. So going back 
and rewatching it, knowing what you know now is like a whole different level of viewing it. So I made a very nice bulletin board for my coworkers at work <laughs> explaining the current state of Game of Thrones in it. a spoiler free away as possible. And I'm very pleased with my work on that. Um and they're like, Kara, this is the third grade class bulletin board. What are you doing? <laughs> no, Nick, I did it in the teacher lounge where only grownups are allowed. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Yeah. So uh, in terms of comics, uh, on my to read list, I got Sleepless because Mike said I must. And yes. Yep. And then uh, I realized my library has some copies from a French creator named Penelope Bajot. And one of her new books, which I haven't read yet, is called Brazen. There's an English translation, and it's all about like badass women throughout history. So I'm like, it's Women's History Month. I am for sure reading this. So mm-hmm. that's next. What I did read this week, because my whole life since coming back from Bali has been like being totally obsessed with the KonMari method of tidying up. Right. So there is a manga called The Life-Changing Manga of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo and it is illustrated by a mangaka named Yuko Uramoto and it's so cute it's basically like the whole Marie Kondo tidying method Mm -hmm. but like put into this manga story of this like single like 20 something woman living in Japan whose life is like a disaster zone and Marie like helps her see that she's just like hoarding all these things from exes and it's keeping her back from finding her one true love, which is the cute boy next door. And it's really cute. <laughs> it's such a cute thing. But it like includes all the relevant lessons from the life changing magic of tidying up the original book. Right. And like if you watch the Netflix show, like you'll see all that stuff here. And they even like make jokes about Marie Kondo, like essentially being a tiny fairy because she's like really diminutive in stature and like super (laughs) cheerful and cute and like she keeps like she wears all these cute little like outfits and everyone expects her to show up in like cleaning clothes and she's like no everything i own sparks joy so i'm gonna wear like my pretty skirt and i'm like yes (laughs) do it so i read the manga it's super precious highly recommend if you're into this method or if you just like cute little manga that teach you things um that was my comic adventure this week that sounds great um i I didn't know that the manga was actually like a little narrative story i thought it was just kind of like in a loose narrative with some instructions on how to do that that's actually really fun that it's it's a narrative story yeah that's really cute it's like even includes that requisite moment where the girl like accidentally trips and falls on the dude that is cute and they're like lying on the ground and she's on top of him and they're both flustered and she runs away and i'm like yes cliches tropes let's do it (laughs) i'm holding off for the avengers crossover i'm just not (laughs) buying in at this point i'm just not i'm sorry like oh boy oh man Maybe like Marie Kondo has to like tidy up Doctor Doom's fortress. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe at that point I would I would I would get on board. But I could see Tony Stark getting really into this. Yeah, I could totally see like showing up at Stark Tower and be like, "I'm throwing everything out. Nothing sparks joy except for Tony. <laughs> <laughs> everything is gone." And then Steve will be in the corner like, "What about me?" He's like, "You can stay too, but everything else is gone." 
Um, I'm waiting for this fanfic. Um, for me, this week, I uh, I read I read so I wasn't here last week, and so I read a bunch of comics. But I do want to mention um, I reread Doom Patrol Volume Two. This is strictly for the um, Doom Patrol read read series that Paul and I are doing on Patreon. So if you want to know what I thought about that, Paul and I recorded episode two today, and we're going to do the rest. I think that's coming out in the middle of April. So look forward to that. Um, Quick shout out to a friend of the show, Anam. She's someone who lives in New York who keeps asking me, when are you going to talk about this? When are you going to talk about that? And so uh, I did read Umbrella Academy and she was like, what are you going to talk about that? Because I'm watching the show and I read the comic. And I will say I read through volumes one and two. I I think I minorly talked about this. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. I've been talking to people about Umbrella Academy a lot recently just because it's kind of all the rage. And um, so this is Gerard Way, Gabriel Ba, fantastic little book. First volume and the second volume kind of need to just be smashed together into one big story because the first volume sets all of the story up and volume two actually executes in giving us a like story beyond just origin, which I really appreciate. Uh, Gabriel Ba's art will always forever be something I love and then suddenly hate and then love again and then suddenly hate. Um, I can never really find my place with his art. There are, there are times when I'm just like, holy shit, this guy nailed it. And there are times where I'm like, what is going on in this page? I can barely follow it. But um, on the whole, I did enjoy both of the volumes. I I think that this reads a lot like Grant Morrison's work. I think this reads a lot like Casanova. This reads a lot like um, some of these wild and crazy out there comics that just take the limits of what should be considered realistic and flip it on the head in order to tell just a bombastic out there story. Um, and so for that reason, I really did like volumes one and two. I really like this. I'm really excited to read volume three. Um, for all of the things that I maybe didn't like about the book, there are way too many things that I did like about the book to, that outweighs them. So like net positive for me on Umbrella Academy. And I'm not trying to give it like a two and a half star review, um, by saying that, but I do think, um, this book suffers from some just weird inconsistencies, which are probably the result of delays during the book's release. Um, maybe lack of focus, which I think Gabriel, or excuse me, Gerard Way has fixed in his new series, where it's he's actually working on this full time, not also being in My Chemical Romance, um, like when he was maybe in Umbrella, doing Umbrella Academy. And Nick, I'm waiting for you to chime in and say, but I'm, you know, My Chemical Romance was broken up at that time. I don't care. I no, you're right. They talk about this in the forward or afterward to the volume. He says that he was having to write it while on like the tour bus. Yeah, and that's thing, and that it. And I don't think it was a. Yeah. I don't think that's necessarily like a thing to knock it for because the book does read wholly. Like I read it both volumes in two sittings and I feel like if you read it like that, there are some pieces that feel a little clunky, but on the whole the book works really well. Um so I, I did enjoy it. I'm gonna read the rest of it when it comes out in trade. I'm I'm trade waiting it, but um I've heard good things about the next volume that is currently being released by Dark Horse. Um Finally, I do want to mention I read One Dirty Tree, which is a book by Noah Van Skyver. This is an autobio comic about Noah's life as a new cartoonist and as a child growing up. So the story follows him as a cartoonist as he's working to really get his first big book published, which is Vontae Bukowski from... Um, or not first big book, but first independent work, um, getting published by Fantagraphics. And uh, it's him kind of dealing with his life at the time and then we flash back to him as a child where he grew up in a house of nine kids um his family was they were mormons and so they they lived in new jersey and uh we get to meet his whole family his mom and his dad his dad was kind of 
ultimately a deadbeat. His mom had to work really hard supporting the whole family. Eventually, his dad just leaves, just disappears off the face of the earth, um, leaving his mom with nine kids. And they lived in this house called, it was 133-something street. And they ended up just calling it One Dirty Tree. And I, I really enjoyed this book. I think this is by far Noah's best work so far. Um, and I've been reading a lot of his stuff as of late. I really just enjoy the work that this guy puts out. Um, what's funky about this book is that you do hear about Noah's brother, Ethan Van Skyver. And for anyone who pays attention in the comics world, yes, this is that Ethan Van Skyver, kind of one of the faces of Comicsgate. And it's interesting to see this guy as a kid, and he's just working on this Cyberfrog comic, and he's just a kid. And at the end of the book, I was kind of, I wasn't sure how like in-depth he was going to go with his brother, because it's obvious. It's 2019. This book came out. Um, in late 2018, like the whole Comicsgate thing is pretty on fire when this book comes out. And by no means does he damn his brother or condemn his brother, but by no means does he act like he's some savior. He gives him a shout out as his brother was a prolific comic book artist for years. And he says, you know, my brother supported me um, all throughout my cartoonist days when I was trying to make it in the world. And I think that's really interesting because like his brother made it big. He was working at DC and I don't mean to like compare Noah to his to his brother Ethan, but uh, it's just interesting to hear that side of things without him going into any details about how he feels about his brother now or whatever, um, but it's nice to see that, like, maybe the dude's not 100% evil, <laughs> but on the whole, I really, the book isn't even about his brother, it's mostly, it's all about him and how he is, he had some problems growing up, which kind of became who he was in, as an adult, and he doesn't make, Noah himself, does, he doesn't make himself out to be this heroic character, necessarily a great person. He, I think he portrays this book pretty honest, and um, it feels really, really raw. Like he was being honest, telling something that he maybe just needed to get out to the world. Like he needed to create this art to get something out. And I, I loved it from beginning to end. I couldn't stop reading it once I picked it up. So if you're looking for something interesting and independent, I really recommend One Dirty Tree. Um, Noah Van Skyver's book, he, he's a fantastic creator. And like I said, this is probably his best work so far. But anyways, I uh, let's move on. Let's talk about comics that are coming out this upcoming week. March 13, 2019 is when comic books will be dropping. Let's talk about what we're excited for, and let's start with Kara. Okay, so IDW is apparently putting out a new Transformers book, uh, Transformers number one. That's, God. I know, but it starts like in Cybertron pre-war. So you're kind of seeing the start of the war between the Autobots and the Decepticons right, and how right. that might have happened. And some of my favorite Transformers fan fiction has taken place during this time period. So I'm interested to see an official take and not just a Romeo and Juliet star-crossed lovers kind of situation between <laughs> Autobot and Decepticon situation, which I love. But obviously, IDW is not going to do that. Or will they? Will they do that? They put out more than meets the eye. They, I don't know. I know. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm saying. We live in a brave new world. Yes. So I, so that obviously, and I, like any number one is going to be an interesting jumping on point for people who are like, oh, Transformers sounds good. What do you mean you're on issue 50? I don't have time or money for that. Oh, number one? Yeah, that. Um, and also from Archie Comics, Vampironica Volume 1 will be out in trade form. So if you've been digging the Archie horror line and you want to see Veronica as a vampire, do that. All right. <laughs> that, the covers for those books are always really gorgeous to me. I, I don't know if I'll, I'll read this because I really have no interest in vampires. But, um, but just the idea that it exists yes, is kind of nice. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Nick, what about you? What are you excited for this week? 
Well, for me, it's the last issue of William Gibson's Alien 3, number 5. <clears throat> this is, uh, the story's by William Gibson. Uh, the adaptation script and art are by Johnny Christmas. Uh, Tamara Bonvillain does the colors, and Nate Picos is the letterer. This is the final issue of the series. Uh, for those unaware, famed sci-fi author William Gibson, the writer of Neuromancer, was hired to write the first draft of 1992's Alien 3 back in 1987. He would be the first of ten authors to tackle the project. He would go on to write another draft the following year in 88. The first would be more tonally in line with Aliens, the second more in line with Alien. Uh, his script is notable for being the only one, including the shooting script, uh, to explain how there could be xenomorphs on the Sulaco following the events of Aliens. Regardless, both drafts would be rejected. Um, so, Nick, just so, real quick. So there's xenomorph. What is Sulaco? I'm, I feel like I'm missing a little so, bit of context sure. here. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, uh, heads up. I'm going to give a few spoilers for the end of the film Aliens. That movie came out and the be- decades ago. It's okay. <laughs> I haven't seen it and, yet. Oh, okay. And okay. the beginning of the film Alien 3. So, I mean... Do you not want uh, us to spoil it, Kara? Whatever. I'll just tune out for a minute. Hold, Just keep going. Okay. <laughs> okay. So... Uh, I'll make this real brief, everybody, so just fast forward otherwise. At the end of Aliens, Corporal Hicks and Ripley and the girl Newt are put into sleep pods, and pretty much right around the beginning of Alien 3, both Hicks and Newt um, die upon impact on the planet. Uh, And, of course, that infuriated a lot of people. Uh this book goes ahead and makes that not happen, simply put. So, spoilers over for that. That's pretty much all you need to really know okay. Okay. in that regard, um, rela- relating to the films. Um, it's an interesting script. It basically revolves around the, uni- the Union of Progressive Peoples, which are basically an allegory for the USSR, and the United Americas, a.k.a. the United States, Um and both are basically developing the xenomorph as a biological weapon for fear that the other is doing the same, a.k.a. it shouldn't surprise anyone that a movie being written at the end of the 80s would have parallels with the Cold War. Right. It, it has an interesting premise. Uh, you start with, like, the Sulaco is is that ship at the end that they're uh, in the sleep pods on, and the Sulaco has navigational failure, which accidentally enters, their ship accidentally enters the territory of the UPP, and the UPP says, well, fair game. And they go ahead and they board the ship, uh, except the DNA that was embedded in Bishop at the end of Aliens becomes an egg, a facehugger attacks the crew, and everything goes south from there. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's an interesting take on Alien 3. I can see in some ways why it was rejected. I can see in other ways why it was... Um, why it has captured so many people's imagination and interest, because this script, the first draft, rather, has been widely available and read by all sorts of Aliens fans for years now. So Mm -hmm. uh, it'll be interesting to see this come to a conclusion. It's just such a weird product to begin with, because I can... I don't know if I've ever seen... I mean, certainly in comics, ever seen an adaptation of a script that was rejected of a product that came to fruition not with that script. Right. That's just so bizarre. I mean, the um, the only exception to that might be the Star Wars, you know, the Lucas original screenplay that was adapted yeah. into a comic. Um, Boy, which, do we know about that one. And we know about that because Kara Renee did a fantastic episode about it. But um, 
like a mini set a long while ago but otherwise i've ne- i don't it's so weird that dark horse is making these types of comics but i think they're doing well right i mean you're buying it well it's so weird <laughs> that in the sense that 20th century fox would be like opening themselves to the idea that hey you want to see something we passed on that <laughs> might be better than what we did right like from that image perspective it's bizarre like it really is but maybe everyone's just um owned up to the fact that alien 3 was a piece of shit and <laughs> anyone who tells you otherwise is just trying to be a fucking edge lord oh jeez but you're liking the series this is the final issue so you've been buying it since the beginning i mean johnny christmas's art is fucking phenomenal in this christmas's art is good i will admit that i've ordered my shop to get me the variant covers for every month mm-hmm. just because it's been a fantastic uh rotational uh run by i think paolo rivera did the first cover Tradmore did another christian ward is doing the last cover oh, wow uh daniel warren johnson is doing another so uh when i heard about that i was like just just get me those those sound amazing yeah so that's great uh well for me this week i'm excited for no surprise here age of x-man apocalypse and the extracts this is by tim seeley with art by salvador espin apocalypse is a good guy question mark i actually don't really know anything about what this series is but it's age of x-man so let's just keep this truck a moving um what is an extract (laughs) so that's the thing i think this is this is supposed to be the series about the rebels inside of this age of x-man universe and they are a a group of mutants that i believe think that emotion and love and creating babies the old-fashioned way not coming out of eggs is the way to do things and so they're rebelling this was what this series was about yeah it's age of x-men is the wildest ride i've ever been on and i don't want to get off it is so (laughs) crazy and i'm here for all of it i admittedly i'm a few i'm like i haven't been keeping up on my weekly books because i've just been like digging through graphic novels that i just really want to read um but I, I've been loving every single issue of all of the Age of X-Men stuff has just been batshit, and it's in the best way possible. Like, Lonnie Nadler and Zach Thompson, who I believe crafted this whole Age of X-Men universe, they did a really good job forming the bubble and limitations and saying, here's what will always be. You cannot break from these three tenets. Otherwise, do what you want. And it's worked really, really well. I'm, I'm very excited to see what this issue is about, because I cannot even fucking imagine apocalypse as a good guy and if he's not a good guy then like what is this book even about so somebody's rebelling against this overarching you know x-men rule the world and they kind of police things and you can't love anybody i don't know bishop went to jail for this that was what last week's issue was about he was in love with jean gray and then he went to jail for it and it wasn't his first offense he had been in love with other people or maybe gene i don't know sorry kara go ahead go ahead what just saying, I'm just over here saying what because I'm so confused. But also, all this apocalypse talk reminded me of something that happened earlier this week. We were talking about the X Men at work, and one of my very, very dear coworker friends said, "Oh yeah, my favorite one is the one about apocalypse." And I, I think I almost shattered my tea <laughs> cup against the window and was like, "You're wrong. It's first class or nothing." Right. <laughs> <laughs> got like really upset because i was just like they made like, oscar funny story. Isaac that's Blue. actually exactly what happened i'm currently on probation 
It just made me so upset. I was like, how is that your assessment? That movie was garbage. Yeah. The series it's based off is garbage. We're all trash here. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, it's that that's uh, that's wild. I mean Oh my god. I don't even like, want to start can... talking about Dark Phoenix because it no, makes no, no, my no, blood not... boil. Oh, but Mike, can you promise that at Chicago when we're all in C2E2 in a couple weeks that you're not in public unless something on your body says X trash. Like we can write it on your arm. We can write it on your face. You can wear a t-shirt, but I need people to know what they're getting into when they talk to you. Oh yeah. I'm a hundred percent on board for that, <laughs> that I will bring a Sharpie dedicated to writing X trash on my body at some point. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, C2E2 is going to be a whole big thing. I hope you guys are all going to be there. If you're going to be at C2E2, please let us know. I'll say that before we go into the break here, because we're going to be at C2E2 and we're going to be living it up all every single member of i read comic books like the regular cast as it is today is going to be there including our boy xander and tia and i are flying in from new york Kara's is coming in from california all the folks in michigan are driving down we're meeting in this central hub and i don't know if chicago is going to survive it so get ready i'm going to meet at, like everyone for the first time in person it's going to be wild it's it's i'm so ex- this is going to be the it's going to be the greatest weekend but we're we're going to take a break and when we come back we're going to talk to a beloved friend of ours, Scott McGovern. He's such a fantastic dude, and he's going to be on the show in just a second. So we'll be back in just a minute. For our show this week, we have a very, very, very special guest. But before we get into introducing that fantastic human... I want to say we are on the road to 20 Patreon supporters, and once we hit 20, all the people that are backing us on Patreon, we're going to do a raffle for a $20 physical comic of your choice, up to $20. We're going to do that. So if you're not a Patreon subscriber, go drop in on that early $2 tier. Hell, you could just give us $1. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you're you're a supporter, you can just get in on this, and we're going to do a raffle. It's going to be fantastic. So get over there to patreon.com slash Podcast and become a supporter because we love you guys. And honestly, the Discord is the coolest part of this whole ordeal. Anyways, we are here to talk to a very special guest, a wonderful human being that Kara and I know from the magical world and industry of comics, Scott McGovern. Scott, thank you so much for being on the show this week. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, Well, first, thanks for saying so many nice things about me, and thanks for saying them so fast at the same time. That really uh, warmed the cockles (laughs) of my heart. Uh, uh, Thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, My name is Scott. I I work at uh, Comixology and Amazon. I've worked at a comic book store. I've been a music teacher, and I work in the marketing department at our favorite company, uh, where I do a lot of work on our sales and promotions. So that's what I do. Yeah, and Scott, you are a font of knowledge when it comes to what comic book distribution is, what it means to work at a comic book shop. Like You've been in the industry for quite a while, right? Yeah, uh, on and off the last 20 years, and when I wasn't in the industry, I was spending a lot of time following it because I just find it incredibly interesting. And the last 20 years has been has been a lot of fun. It's been a fun ride watching the rise of the graphic novel and watching pop culture uh, and comics become such a part of mainstream culture, especially on movies and TV. Yeah, definitely. I would argue that Scott is the only man alive outside of the actual previews company who knows previews on the level that he does. 
<laughs> right. I mean, yeah, Scott, I watched you give a presentation all about how the direct market works and how it's worked in the past over the many, many years. I mean, you seem to be like on the pulse with this stuff. Like what got you super into it? Well, I got lucky. Um, it was actually about 20 years ago. I had been just started getting back into comics after having lapsed during the 90s. And uh, my comic book store, the guy who did the comics every week, I walked in the day after he got fired. And I said, oh, are you guys hiring? And they said, yes. And within a week, I had the job. And I really enjoyed it. Like, I really really enjoyed like selling comics and talking to people about comics and it was a really good time for content um because mm -hmm. vertigo was kind of at its nadir it was at its high point and you know you had a lot of great books coming out from them from dc this is around the time uh joe casada and bill jemis took over marvel and really kind of reinvented the entire company and brought in fresh talent uh, so i really enjoyed the content i really enjoyed the job uh, and I really ended up enjoying the business because it was just unique and fun. And at that point in time, I had been reading comics for over 10 years on and off. And right. I, I really got into it. As for previews, as working comic retail, you spend so much time with that magazine. I mean, just <laughs> tons and tons and tons of time. And then in my experience working at Comixology, when I first got hired, I was working on the pull list. So I wasn't just reading the magazine i was now helping process 2000 plus items every month and looking at everything from comics single issues to variants to one shots to graphic novels to dvds to blu-rays to even baseball cards for a little while so right. I, i've been kind of lucky with the jobs i've had where i was able to really get in depth with a lot of the particulars of the industry when you're doing ordering at like a retail level you know, you're either I was one of those people who was like, I'm going to order as uh, the biggest, the, the most width of product that I can to try and help grow the customer base. That's not true right. for every comic book store. There's a lot of people who just, you know, they want to order their Hulk and their Batman and their Thor and maybe, you know, the two copies of Walking Dead for their couple customers. And they're fine <laughs> with that. And that's yeah, just the yeah. way some of the stores work. But for me, it was all about the variety. So. In order to be really up on that variety, to really feel comfortable with that product, uh, I really had to learn about it and learn about the publishers. And also, the other thing I would say is when I first started working, um, the internet wasn't a toxic place. So there were a lot of a lot of the creators were just originally getting online and had their own message boards. And this is before social media. And some mm -hmm. of them were really real were really well run. And as a result, like there was a lot of information sharing without all of the toxic behavior that you see on Twitter and Facebook. So I, I came in at a good time. Can yeah. I can I say the a publisher perspective counterpoint to what Scott was just just describing about uh, previews and ordering and trying to order outside of what you know is already going to sell. Uh, when I was initially hired by Archie right after college, they hired me specifically to cold call comic shops across the U.S. and point out the Archie books that were in previews that month and like pitch those books. And so my experience with the direct market ordering system professionally was me, first of all, finding all these comic shops, because fun fact, there is no like comprehensive nationwide list. And then just calling them and saying, hi, I'm 
I'm Kara for Archie Comics, and I want to tell you about what we've got on order this month and the range of reactions from I know how to use previews to, okay, like, obviously young female person, let me listen to what you have to say, was fascinating. Interesting. (laughs) My first thought when you start talking about that is, oh, God, I feel so bad for you. I never knew that you had to do this because that's a tough job because I know some retailers would just be like really nasty uh, to to publishers who call, especially if you try calling on a Wednesday. They'd be like, what are you what are you doing? Do you know what today is? Today's the day I make my rent. You can't be (laughs) calling me like so. uh, So I didn't know you did that. That's that's insane. Good for you. But I'm so sorry for you at this. I had to I you I became very close friends with Google Maps that summer because I would literally like Google like comic shops in states, then look them up on Google Maps and street view to see if the information was actually accurate and there was actually a shop there. And if there was actually a shop there, according to street view, then I would try calling the number and see if they would actually pick up my call. And as yeah, a, and as a shy introvert who hates talking to people on the phone, this was my personal hell. So that was mm-hmm. a time of immense personal growth for me. Kara basically used this to run a racket, more or less. You know? <laughs> She's like, hey, I looked in Google View. I see that it's you standing in front of your shop with your kid. It would be a real bad thing if anything happened to that little guy. Nick. Nick. Seven so, copies of Afterlife so, with Archie. Or So uh, if I know. called your comic shop in 2012 and you wondered how I got your number, it's because I stalked you on Google. I'm sorry, but it was right, my job. Right. The internet was not nearly as locked down as it was in 2012. Now, to get things back a little bit on topic, um, Nick, you, you're you like a pretty prolific user of the preview system. So you, you're coming at it from the consumer side. I mean, I used to be the same way until I started going to Midtown Comics, and then I didn't have to worry about ordering anything at all um, <laughs> right, in the right. magical world that I live in. Yeah. But uh, Nick, I mean, what's your perspective on how this whole thing's work? Have you ever pre like use previews to buy like a t-shirt or a dvd because <laughs> i always forget that those things are also in the very back of the previews order book right i mean good god like everything is in previews for better or for worse from from figurines yeah. to to any sort of fan related paraphernalia that they're into of course um i've never done it for any of that stuff partially because i'm not a figurine person but also because right. it seems like anyone from people who work at shops to people on reddit will tell you that it seems like so many times out of you know whatever that people who order these things end up having them come into the shop broken and then they get reordered and then they get reordered and then they get reordered so um, right i've ordered a thing <laughs> i ordered a thing for previews that wasn't a comic it was uh cast your mind back to the wolverine movie where Hugh Jackman spends most of his time shirtless. So they released a figure of him shirtless, and I needed it. So I had to order it through my local comic shop, through previews, and they were like, you want what one? I'm like, the shirtless one. I'm speaking English. Work with me They're like, you're going to have to be more specific, man. We have several of those. so, So I got it, and it was fine, and it was on my desk at Comixology forever, and everyone was always like, oh, God. And I was like, but you look at him <laughs> and Kara's like, um, like excuse me and Kara's like give me the half naked man <laughs> <laughs> but now it actually um I actually sold 
sold it uh, this past summer. I went through a lot of my comic stuff and tried my luck at selling it on eBay. And that was my highest resale value item. Someone I made thirsty. double no my money. I made double my money on that. I lost money on every other thing that I purchased. But that one, mm, everyone wants shirtless Wolverine. I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised <laughs> there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Sorry yeah, to so scare I mean, you, Mike. No, no, that's, t- I, listen, we, we've done whole episodes of me just talking about my love of X-Trash. Let's, we don't have to get into it. Um, but I mean, so we're here, you know, t- to talk about some of the direct market stuff. I mean, Nick, I know you, we sent, passed around an article. I don't know if you got a chance to read it, but uh, there's this big thing where the, the direct market is starting to become kind of like a bottleneck in some ways, right? For, for comics. And I think there's a lot of discussion around, you know, is, is the future, of comics not just the direct market like giving these given the success of a lot of individual graphic novelists to sell through typical book publishers um i guess scott my question for you is you've got a lot of familiarity with it like what do you think the do you think the the direct market will continue to survive like the next decade given your experience with it yes (laughs) all right that's it wrap it up we're done here all right go on scott the end of this episode I only ask that because um, it seems like other more and more independent artists are moving away from the direct market in order to actually make a more successful like life on as, as a cartoonist in a lot of ways. Right. Okay. So there's a number of different channels available to comic creators, m- more so now than ever before. You can mm-hmm. go through bookstores. You can go through digital. You can do Kickstarter. You can start your own website. Um, You know, you can build up your brand on social media or any combination of all of that. But most of that applies to non-superhero comics because there really aren't a lot of successful non-direct market superhero comics out there. Maybe just a handful. And they eventually seem to get uh, grabbed by one of the publishers and published in previews and through Diamond. So uh, in terms of comic book stores and the direct market – um, the number of comic book stores is, is fairly steady. It's like been hovering around 2,200 for a number of years. Um, sometimes I mm-hmm. see uh, people online going, oh, no, like 300 stores have closed in the last two months. And I'm like, you're drunk. Go home. I don't yeah, know what yeah, you're talking yeah. about. Um, uh, if that was really true, you'd hear about it from everybody because orders would drop across the board. You'd see it in the sales charts that Diamond releases every month. Um, with that many stores, it's hard for me to see like that number of stores shrinking unless there's a massive economic downturn. And while we're probably due for another recession, I don't think a depression is in the cards unless the world right. – gets even more chaotic so i I don't scott i'm i'm trying i'm trying (laughs) not to and thanks again kara for being so positive today i I really truly appreciate that um and i I should i should point out that scott and kara used to work together for a long time so this isn't just kara coming on being mean-spirited it's there's a lot of love here this is there really is it's just it's just kara being kara that's really all it is (laughs) oh did i say that my bad Oh, Kara, what? No response. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought you were going to say. So I I think in terms of the direct market, it's in a good place. There's a lot of really good product being published. Um, Mm -hmm. I just think right now a lot of the stores are struggling with ordering. And you kind of see that link that was shared around is that um, there's a lot of product being published. There's a lot of variants out there. Um, the ordering process has gotten more complicated in the last 10 years. It used to just be every month previews comes out and you post a, a, a monthly order through Diamond. Now you've got this, 
process called the final order cutoff where you're updating those orders every Monday. And it's just like, I think a lot of retailers, even the ones who do well with variants, just think there's too many right now. And maybe even some of the publishers are over-publishing. And you've seen this, and they announced it at Comics Pro. A couple of the publishers, IDW and Boom, and even DC have said, hey, we're cutting back a little bit on the number of single issues that are being published because there's just too many. And a lot of the comic book stores, they just don't have the space for every single single issue that's being released every month to leave space for that on the wall. Or the money. Right. There's just such a sheer volume of content, which is great until you're that shop owner who can't sell back the issues they don't sell in the store. Right. Yeah. There's more better genre-related content now than ever before. Even Mm -hmm. though, like, if you take a look at the number of books that Marvel and DC are publishing versus what they've historically done over the last 10 or 20 years, like IDW, Boom, Image, Dark Horse, uh, Valiant, they're all publishing, you know, a lot of genre related content. And the problem is like the stores may only be selling a couple copies, each of these, but they're still selling them versus 10, 15 years ago, half that product wasn't even available. Right. I mean, and just for just for clarification here, there's an article from Comics Beat that Nick found and passed on to me, and I passed on to everybody else um, about a retailer named Brian Hibbs had like a ten point plan for the comic industry based on this thing that we're basically talking about here. The final order cutoff date being a big point of his of the article, and I'll make sure that's in the show notes if you want to familiarize yourself with it, because I think we're probably going to touch on a couple other points like that. We haven't even gotten close to Nick's paragraph of of notes that he's got so i want to at least give nick a chance to jump in here with some of this because i think it's really good uh you mean in terms of that recommendation or just some of my information about the direct market or what were you yeah i mean all of it nick all of it yeah all of it (laughs) okay all of Um, it nick white obviously this is not going to be news to some of you and and definitely not news to scott but uh just a little primer for those that are interested um so a lot of this comes from a guy named Cheryl Rhodes, S-H-I-R-R-E-L. I'm sure I botched his name too. Uh, he wrote a book about 10 years ago called Comic Books, How the Industry Works. Um, Rhodes is probably best known for being the executive VP of Marvel in the mid-90s. Um, and he talks about that the fact that what we think of as the modern distribution landscape for comics is called the direct market, which emerged in the 1980s. Before this, as some of you know, comics were sold through newsstand channels, spinner racks at drugstores, near the checkout at your local grocery store. Um, but this old model um, worked on a returnable basis, and what didn't sell um, got sent back as unpaid. And unscrupulous shops, um, while they were instructed to rip off the cover and send that back, well, many of them didn't want to, they found it burdensome to send back the whole book. So they would simply rip off the cover and send back the cover. And then unscrupulous shops would just simply tear off part of the cover and then sell the book. So there were problems with this. Wait, um, is that still done today, though? Do bookstores still do that? I still encounter at some comic book shops where they'll have a free rack and all of the covers are ripped off. <laughs> so that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen that before. I mean, to be clear, they're not trying to make money on these things, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do see this occasionally, and I, I think it's usually, um, it's just promotional content. It's not actual, it's like, you know, here's the free, the free Star Wars primer of our new books or whatever, you know. Right, so. right. Um, 
So the direct market basically ended up having shops buying their comic books outright with no returns, although as some of us know, there are exclusions to this and exemptions. Uh, And they removed the middleman. Uh, This resulted in retailers getting a much better price for their uh, comics, and publishers would actually know how a title was doing without waiting for the unsold copies to come uh, trickling back in over several months. Um, There used to be several direct market publishers, Diamond, Heroes World, Friendly Franks, Capital City, uh, and of course, more than two decades later, Diamond would pretty much have a monopoly of sorts. Um, Thanks, 90s. Well, and that's the thing. So, and that's actually something I wanted to talk to Scott about because I heard you give a talk about this. But the way that Diamond operates, it's it's a monopoly, but it's not truly a monopoly, right? Right. Um, Diamonds does not have a monopoly on graphic novels at all. Right. Like, there's tons of book uh, book distributors and book publishers to sell direct to retailers. Um, in terms of single issues, up until a couple of years ago, there's always been a couple very small, very niche. Uh, alternative distributors that sell single issues, but uh, the large publishers, the large direct market publishers, DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, they have exclusive contracts with Diamond to sell their single issues exclusively through Diamond, and that's just due to the fallout of the distributor wars in the 90s that Nick was just talking about. Uh, yeah, that's a great crossover event. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for how why things worked out the way they did with the distributors. Um, in the 90s, but one of them was that Marvel decided to buy a distributor and distribute themselves, and within like 18 to 24 months it had all fallen apart, and they just went back to Diamond on their hands and knees and said, hey, we'll just do it exclusively through you. Was um, that around, was that pre or post the time when they were essentially bankrupt and selling off all their assets? Uh, I believe that was pre, and it helped lead into the bankruptcy, but I would have to double check that one to be honest with you. Mm, Marvel, how far you've come? Uh, yeah, Marvel bought Heroes World to distribute their own material in '94, and then I think what you're talking about the bankruptcy was like '96. I th- yeah, I think. I, that that feels right to me too. So it was more towards the second half of the decade where the bankruptcy really kicked in. But it got kind of funny because after they went ahead and did that. Uh, Diamond retaliated and got an exclusive distribution contract with Image, DC, and Dark Horse. And then that just screwed over everybody because all of these shops now had to have... um, uh, They had to have uh, accounts with both of these companies, so... Oh, Marvel in the 90s. So many cargo pockets and no money to fill them with. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the way that this distribution system worked, I mean, since this whole you know, crossover event. I'm just going to keep calling it that. Um, Things have been solely on Diamond for the most part for distributing, like Scott was saying before, primarily superhero comics. And now, you know, Image does their own stuff. Dark Horse does their own stuff. And there's a ton of other publishers out there that are doing both superhero and non-superhero. But I guess if, to go back to my first question before, you know, do we think this can survive? Is, Is it just because of the reliancy on Diamond, or is it because this system actually works, it's just it needs some tweaks? Uh, I would say a little of both. First off, a lot of the publishers have multiple revenue streams of their own, so it's not like they're all solely reliant on Diamond. 
Um, I remember a couple of years ago, I saw IDW, Ted Adams was doing an interview, I think, at comicbookresources.com, and they showed a chart of all of the different parts of IDW, and, like, there's a gaming division, they're working in movies and TV, they had bought Top Shelf, and I was like, wow, that's really, they've really diversified, and there was a really interesting quote where he said, like, they're generating 25% of their revenues coming from the direct market. And I'm like, wow, that's really healthy. Like, they're definitely, you know, they've got their big tree. they got branches going everywhere. But for the direct market itself and for Diamond itself and for comic book stores, there's still a lot of comic book stores that even though they know there's other options out there, they're really only solely ordering from Diamond. And that right. puts them kind of in a tough jam because you got a lot of these stores who are just ordering Marvel and DC and then like a handful of books from other publishers they're not trying to branch out and you know they're getting frustrated too and it's like well if you don't diversify your product line and you don't diversify where you're ordering from you're kind of putting yourself in this position so right. i would say for the direct market like you really can break it down into a couple different types of stores you have stores that are trying different things that are ordering new product lines that are diversifying and then you have a lot of stores who are just like i want to sit and talk about who would win in a fight between hulk and thor every week sure but that but that is also like you have to remember these are small businesses so for a lot of these businesses they're like hey this has been working for the last 10 years and if I order the too much of the wrong thing, that's less money for me and my employees. So, like, I can totally see why a lot of these store owners get in this in this space where they're just like, I know it works. I'm going to stick to it. This is my client base, and I'm fine with that. And like for the stores that are ordering new books and trying new things, that's wonderful. They are taking a risk, and they know that. So it just depends, I guess, on like what audience you're looking for. Um, like if you are in that comfort zone of like superheroes all the time, like I know exactly what you're describing because that was essentially the comic shop that that I patronized for 10 years was like dudes talking about superheroes and my girlfriends and I would like go to the back and sit on the floor in the aisles and like giggle about which superheroes we were like all about that month. But like mm-hmm. it, it wasn't super welcoming, but we loved it so we didn't really care <laughs> and yeah. it just depends on like what you're looking for in an audience and this is why we see a lot of shops kind of diversify their um products with games and magic the gathering basically every kind of card game as well as right. some paraphernalia Tabletop. and board games and stuff um because that's a an easy income stream especially if you're the only shop in a you know 30 mile radius for the handful of nerds <laughs> Yeah, and I I think the danger in that is when some of those places decide that um, I guess they still want to be involved in comics, but it's like assuredly on the back burner for them. And and I've been in shops like this, and I'm sure all of us have, where comics really feel like an afterthought. And if that's your local comic book store and there isn't anything else around really close even remotely beyond that it can get really frustrating because a lot of these places um you end up with a place that doesn't order beyond pulls which can be frustrating and especially if you're a newer customer that can be really jarring um and then you have the places which are even worse that don't even really understand what a poll is or what you're trying to do. And I, I know some of you listening out there are like, this, this can't be real, but like these places exist. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> again, they're small businesses and it, like a pull list is a sure bet, but then you need to have that consumer that knows what a pull list is, that knows how to order off the pull list, that knows exactly what they want. And that's not everybody. Yeah, I had documentation. I would uh, hand out like a sheet explaining what the pull list was. And I Mm -hmm. also, I had a credit card agreement because one of the problems I'd run into, and this is something a lot of stores run into, is people who don't come in and pick up their books. So I basically said, you're going to give me, if you want us to reserve books, uh, you're going to come in once every four to six weeks or I'm going to charge your card. And we had a lot less problems after that. My former LCS owner had a box of shame. (laughs) It's just like all the folders of people who hadn't come in a couple months to pick up their stuff would end up in this box and it would sometimes sit on the front counter if it got really bad. There was one dude who had a folder that there must have been like a hundred books in this folder. And I was I remember just like looking at it as a high school student who was like relying on babysitting money to buy my comics and just being like, who are you? What is your job that you can afford like these four dollar books? like stacked up to the ceiling what is mm-hmm. going on i mean i've been that guy before in that i was in college and didn't have any money but still had a pull list and like i had been shopping at my shop for oh, probably Mike, no. four years and so they knew me they knew that i wasn't gonna just totally ghost them but i, I remember there was a day i went in after probably four months uh after not buying anything and i checked in with them and called them and like hey i'm gonna come here i'm gonna come i just need to you know wait for an actual amount of money to come in that i can afford all of this or at least most of it and I, the day I left, I had to co- leave with like a grocery bag or two's full of comics just because there was so many. Um, and again, my pull list was massive at a time where I didn't have money. And I don't know how that happened, but uh, I, I've been there before. But that's, that's still really interesting, Scott. Like, I think that's that's one of the, the, the stranger parts of comics is that there's no way to like charge people up front to ensure that shops aren't going to get kicked in the stomach when it comes to people like who are pulling you know 30 books a month and maybe they don't show up for two months like if that's your cash cow and you've got a couple of those people and they're not coming in it's like shit is this pull list system actually really working that well for us um and that's where something where like comiXology's pull list system or like the legacy comics pull list system or supposedly diamond is rolling out their own pull list system where people can reserve their stuff and be accountable for all of their work rather than just the comic book shop owning some of that like accountability right right and and those those people who don't show up to pick up their books i mean generously you could call them deadbeats sorry mike that guess that was you at one point in time. <laughs> I, um listen, that ties up this was, it was really a while ago for me listen my comic <laughs> shop was like a half hour drive for me i didn't have my own car sometimes i couldn't get there for a couple months but i was always good for it Okay. Yes, exactly, exactly. But it it ties up cash flow because those retailers yes, yes. bought paid for those books on like Tuesday or Wednesday, and then that money is basically just collecting dust for a while. So you mm-hmm. know, if you can get people into the stores more often, they get their money back, they turn a profit, and they can reinvest that money into the business. So it's it's a, but it's it's hard because a lot of comic book stores, you know, the people the owners aren't really necessarily business owners but they're hobbyists they're doing this out of love this is the kind of store they want they're happy with the number of customers they've got but they don't know how to like move forward from a business perspective and stop some of these problems from happening right and and that's something i saw in a lot of articles about the direct market was this struggle with the fact that 
especially some of the more complicating factors that previews have, have introduced alongside the direct market, have made it a tougher business for people that are genuinely... Uh, their whole deal is that they're just very interested in comics. They very love, they just love comics a lot. And now it's sort of uh, changed into a, an industry a little bit where it helps or it really is necessary to be to some degree actually business savvy or have some experience with that side of things um, beyond what it used to be because that's more, it's more requisite now. I don't know. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, ordering is hard. It's hard work, and I, I say this, and I, it's not meant to be a joke, but it requires a lot of math. You have to sit down and go, you know, you know, if you're ordering seven copies of a book um, and you know that you're going to sell two copies off the wall, so you're ordering nine, seven for a pull list and two for people that are ordering on the wall, how many more or, or that are going to take buy off the wall, how many more copies do you order? Like, do you go to 10? Do you go to 11? Do you go to 12? If it's something like Batman, where it's a bestseller, you're going to order extra copies because you know they're going to sell. If it's something like Squirrel Girl, you're probably not going to order any extra copies off the wall because in single issues, Squirrel Girl doesn't sell very well. But in graphic novel and hardcover, it does very, 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 very well. Scholastic right. book fairs, but libraries, you know, et cetera. Kara, go ahead. Thank you. But you need to get past the first like three floppies to but like so floppy. The problem with this whole system to me is that you need to have your first like three or four single issues do well in order for your publisher to keep paying for your book to get it to the trade, which is where it's really going to make the money. But if shop owners aren't taking the risk on those first few floppies, even if it's from a big publisher, and they say, well, I don't really know if my customers are really going to want to get like this book about this small team on the side that like no one really cares about, but it might develop a niche following. But I don't know if that niche following is at my store. So I'm going to order like two issues. But if like everyone does that, and then after the first month, they're like, I don't know, I mean, I have to like order these things three months out so that I'm taking a risk on actually like six issues for this series because I need right. two copies of each of these. Then it all starts adding up. And that's where I think the problem is in terms of get expanding the market is that the onus is on these shop owners to make these decisions that directly financially impact them. And they might not make those choices, which is totally rational. And then the publishers might not keep books going that really take like a trade to build their stride and their fan base. Right. I, I, I would say this just a just a minor rebuttal on that. I, I think it feels like these days a lot that DC and Marvel both fully understand the power of the trade regardless. And I remember when the new 52 rolled around, I think DC had their policy, which they then did inevitably break a few years later. But they basically Shocking. said it, it, it took them like four years, which is, I think, stellar for them. Uh, they said everything's going to trade, if I recall correctly. And so I, it does seem like, for better or for worse, both DC and Marvel, even if something is totally tanking, it at least has to put out enough issues to hit the trade and the trade comes out. Um and yeah. Brian, uh, what was his name, Gibbs or Hibbs or whatever, he points out in his article that this has actually kind of been a bit of a problem from an editorial perspective because 
the editors are telling their creators to write towards the trade and to write, you know, basically in terms of page lengths, in terms of pacing and everything, everything has to go towards the trade because inevitably mm-hmm. that has to roll out too. So, um, yeah, and I'm not saying it, the book doesn't immediately get tanked after trade one, but it does seem like most books are at least secure to that point. Um yeah, I don't really know. Weird. I can't immediately think of anything that's gotten like the plug pulled immediately after like two issues and and never seen a trade or whatever. There have been than, a couple, other than that Clarion book at the end of the New Fifty Two, which never hit trade apparently. Yeah. Well, then I think this is a this is a new development then because I'm thinking like my heyday of purchasing oh, single issues was like ten years ago, and stuff would get dropped all the time. Like yeah. Um, one of my favorite series of all time that DC was doing in the in the late 2000s was Shadow Pact, and that never went to trade, or like they did the first volume, but the whole series, like I still have my floppies in like one day, I'll probably read them again because it was really good, but I'd love to have that in trade and it's just not. I mean, Mike, I think you remember when I sent you those articles about the awkward position that DC was put in because like... Amazon like had put up these placeholder pages for the trades like months and months and months in advance right, and the right. DC was like we never said we were going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then Amazon's got these pages up and DC's like oh shit. Scott, you were going to jump in. Uh, I was going to say actually the um, one of the first new 52 books was um Hawk and Dove by Rob Liefeld. <laughs> I don't <laughs> yes, think it, it actually and it, I forgot and about I that. And I don't think it even lasted 7 issues. I don't think it even got to issue 6 and I'm mm-hmm. almost 100% certain that they did not release a trade of it because the <laughs> numbers for the single issues were oh, bad. I've seen it cuz we pulled it out on shelves and laughed at it. Oh, yeah. you did. Oh, yeah. Wait, really I think they did have I feel like I read that. I must have read that because I love Hawk and Dove, but I, I who gave them to Liefeld is my question. The, uh, the, the what percentage? James, I, I would love to James see. The, at DC is a huge oh, 90s ahead, fan, and that was Rob Liefeld's kind of like heyday. So I think he wanted to see if Rob Liefeld still had like a, could draw an audience to the book. And mm-hmm. well, yeah, but maybe not for Hawk and Dove, like. Give, give <laughs> yeah, <them a> right. <laughs> that's free. actually what uh rob like you know it's what he actually first started on he did some hawk and dove back in the late 80s early 90s yeah, so they were kind of returning him to the, these characters he had worked on once before oh i have so many questions <laughs> yeah that that's a whole other discussion i think um we're kind of we're kind of running out of tape here so um scott i mean what are your thoughts on i guess the future of distribution like uh, about the direct market how do you what do you think we can be done to potentially improve it. And if you don't have a solid, you know, answer, that's, that's totally fine. I realize I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I don't think, I think the, the system that currently exists is in massive need of improvement for mm-hmm. everybody, but I don't think it's on the verge of collapse. That's okay. kind of where I sit with it. I think the biggest thing that would help um, the direct market is more new stores and also existing existing successful stores opening up additional locations um mm-hmm. that's a tough mm-hmm. one to do because going from one store to two is really hard like that's yes. harder than going from three to four because if you've made it to three you found a system you've got people you trust you you know you've got processes and procedures in place you can go to four and then maybe you can go to five but a lot of the store owners who are just 
uh, owning their own store, a lot of them are working 50 to 60 hours a week. How do they do right. that? How do they be in two places at once? Because no one's ever going to work as hard for your store as you are. Mm-hmm. You know right. I mean? So in terms of distribution, I, I don't know that you're going to see uh, an alternative to Diamond for single issues ever pop up or even really be successful. And I don't know why you – I honestly don't think it's necessary. I think – there's more avenues online through whether it's digital or website or Kickstarter. There's more avenues to publish your own stories than ever before that don't rely on print single issues through Diamond. You know, if, if somebody came mm-hmm. up and said, I've got this great idea for a comic, here it is, I would say serialize it on the web and then sell it as a graphic novel in print. Right. You know, don't deal with single issues because it's such a hassle. You know, you got to store them. Do you pay distribution costs at Diamond? You got to reprint them for yourself if you're going to shows. You know, stick with books. It's the better format. So, in terms of the direct market, like I don't see single issues ever doing more than they've done for the last 10 or 15 years. Some mm-hmm. years they're up by a couple percentage points. Some years they're down by a couple percentage points. If the economy uh, takes a bath again, maybe you're down by 8 or 10%, and then the next year you're down by 6 and then a couple years later you're up by 4 or 5%. And a lot of the single-issue sales, and we didn't really get into this, is driven by like big events by DC and yeah. Marvel. You know, like when Civil War first came out or Blackest Night came out, those were really God. good Right. Oh, geez, I just sent you down memory lane, didn't I? <laughs> but um, in terms of the direct market, like I don't, the number of stores has been fairly stable. You know, I, I don't see that changing. I just, I see like in the long run for creators, there's going to be a lot more options in terms of diversity, in terms of how you publish your comic. And in gotcha. terms of like, uh, you know, the publishers, like a comics pro, uh, they, uh, a number of publishers announced that they've cut their, their production of single issues by like 10, 15%. Boom, IDW and DC. And they're like, we're cutting back a little bit just to kind of leave some more space for some of our better selling books. So I think you'll continue to see more of that. And I think you're going to kind of continue to see more give and take. I think there's a lot of really good conversations going on between at all levels of the print comics industry, between retailers and distributors and publishers. That's going to lead to more further, better change. Um, so that's kind of what I think about the direct market. Gotcha. So if you got a comic idea, just publish it yourself, folks. Uh, Mike! <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, Scott, this has been like a really, really great conversation. I feel like we probably could go on for another hour or two. Um, so maybe we'll have to have you come back for a part two to this conversation. Um, but until then, where can people find you on the internet? If they want to reach out to you with any questions or anything like that. Uh, you can probably find me. At, the easiest place to do is find me on Twitter at Scott K. McGovern. And if you're interested of in seeing any of my travel adventures, you can find me on Instagram at Cocktails and Ink. Three words. The best cool handle beans. ever. And also yes. his captions are super thoughtful. Makes me want to go yes, drinking with you in New Orleans. Yes, I, I, that's. I was going to ask you about that, by the way, because I saw you post a picture of you in like Mardi Gras theme makeup, and I was like, "Oh, Kara, I know, I know, <laughs> I know." I thought of you actually while I was doing my makeup. I was like, "Yeah, Scott would approve of this." So thank you for approving. <laughs> I've gotten. I've started to be like well known for my love of New Orleans. It's really funny. Like a friend of mine just texted me out of the blue last week. She's like, "You're how's Mardi Gras?" 
And I'm like, I'm, I'm not there. I'm going for Jazz Fest at the end of April. And she's like, oh, I thought you go every year. I'm like, I <laughs> do. I go like twice a year, but I got to mix it up a little bit. Yeah, you yeah. got to see more of it. Yes, I love that. We'll, we'll make sure we've got links to that stuff in the show notes if you guys want to check out what Scott's up to. He's a pretty interesting dude, to say the least. Well, um, so other, other than that, you can follow the rest of us on the show on Twitter. You can follow Nick at Death Star Plans. You can follow Kara at Kara Sam, And you can follow me at Mike Rappin. You can follow the show at IRCB Podcast, where we post things. And we also have an Instagram that I update every once in a while when I'm at a weird comic book shop. We would also love it if you went ahead and checked out our Goodreads group, uh, where we have weekly threads, such as uh, we have ones going on right now about the Umbrella Academy, comic book nostalgia, as well as March's Book of the Month, Darth Vader Volume 1 by Kieran Gillen. We would also love it if you went to our website, ircbpodcast.com, where we have a merch store as well as a pronunciation guide for every name that I inevitably botch on this show. (laughs) And in addition, if you have a chance, go ahead and rate and subscribe to our show. Tell your friends. Share the show. If you haven't rated, why not? It helps us, whether that's on Apple, whether that's on Stitcher. It doesn't matter. Ratings help us across the board. You can email us with your comments, questions, jokes, etc. at ircb at destroythecybe.org. That is ircb at destroythecyborg, but there's a dot before the org. You can also subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash ircbpodcast for exclusive audio and articles, early access to top of my pile posts, and more, including our Discord chat group, which you want to be in on before C2E2 because Tia and I will go on and post drunk selfies. <gasps> I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's definitely what we're going to be doing. Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all the music for our show. Thank you guys so much for continuing to let us use your music. We love it to death. Xander is a true, pure wizard who lives in the skies above us, and he comes down to grace us with our presence once a year it's fantastic he edits every episode of the show once a year he travels through time it's great xander thank you so much for doing the work that you do thank you to kara and nick and extra special thanks to scott for being on the episode this week we really appreciate it man and thank you to all the listeners out there we really appreciate you too you guys are fantastic so until next time comics are good and so are you thank you for listening Okay, but are we in Chicago yet? Oh boy, I know, right? <laughs> That's like the the thing that I'm wor- like my whole world is circling around right now. Like I have been looking forward to this weekend for like a year. When did we start planning this? It feels like a year. Uh, about 9 months ago? Yeah. 10 months ago? Yeah, it's it's been it's been a thing. I can't believe that everyone's going. I don't even know what it's going to be like. I'm so scared, excited, anxious worried frightened well it'll it's be... all negative emotions for some no reason. <laughs> well it'll it'll be interesting because tia has a point because everyone seems to be doing eccc there will be like less of a party vibe at c2e2 i think like it seems like it'll be much more much more chill but also we might recognize fewer people so i don't know we'll see i've like i've only been to that show once before but i really liked it so i'm just kind of like get me to artist alley yeah, C2E2 is like, it's like New York Comic Con, but there is enough space to Actual move. space. Yes. Yeah. And I really appreciate that con. Like I said in the chat, like, 
it's it's a con that I started with. It was like my first big con that I really was going to, and I went to it for five years straight. Like, and every year was better than the last. So I'm very excited. This is like a homecoming in a weird way for me because I haven't been in four years. Well, it's time. And then you get to roll deep with your whole squad. I don't. Wh- yeah, we'll be in one room one time for five minutes. But I'm excited about that. That's all that I want. I just need one photo and one. I one expect cheers everyone at Barcon. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, one well, time that, in one I do room. too. I mean, I know, like, yeah, I, I think we'll all be at Barcon at least for a little bit. The Barcon and we were situation. About karaoke. Yeah, the, the Barcon situation at C2E2 is really weird because the bar is fucking teeny tiny. That's the only downside of it. Oh, so we'll all be really close friends all mushed together. Yeah, I think what'll happen is we'll do what I did three like my third year or fourth year when i went and i'll just buy a fifth of booze and then we'll just go sit in the convention center after it's closed because they don't check what yeah i just we like there's a part of the convention center that is open at night to for like people to walk through that is not part of the like actual convention itself and you can just go sit there because it's technically part of the hotel it's mm. if I if things are the same way they were four years ago, which who knows? Um, who knows? That's that. We'll see. We'll see. Either way, I'm I'm very excited for this convention. It's going to be a hoot and a holler, and God. it's it's just I can't believe that all you people are finally meeting face to face after four years. That's the that's the funniest thing to me. Mike, I am agonizing over my wardrobe. You should like <laughs> agonizing. Just just the first question should be. Does it sparkle? Yes or no? Okay. Right? Okay. Here's here's the thing, though. I actually have fewer sequin dresses here. Um, a lot of them are in New York because people in California don't fucking dress up ever. Oh. So, yeah. So, like, I bought this beautiful dress last year, and I waited a year to wear it because there was literally nothing to wear it to. So, I finally wore it to, like, my school's holiday party and had a ball so i'm definitely bringing that one because i actually brought it to emerald city last year and didn't wear it because the day that tia and i were like supposed to wear our all out but like ball gowns we were both just kind of like jeans yes (laughs) so uh so bringing that one and then oh my god i have this other cute one that i got in england last time i was there and it's so precious but again only wore it once because people don't hear don't dress up here and it drives me crazy i'm used to an east coast level of style well you know you're gonna be in the midwest so no matter what you wear it's gonna look better than anyone else because they, everyone's oh. from the midwest and it's oh, seven I know years that. behind it's oh great. i know that because last year i went to a wedding in indiana in january oh. and we we knew who the city people were from the coasts because those were the people in like furs and sequins and all the Midwesterners were just like in like in nice clothes. But like I was wearing a sequin dress with a slit from Paris. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Nick. So sorry. Fuck you. You're from the Midwest. Sorry, Xander. We love you. But fuck you. You're from the Midwest. You know, you're from you're California. You're from the Midwest Xander. too, Mike. I'm not anymore. I've been here long enough. It counts. Oh <laughs> I'll see you all in a dress shirt. And uh, who am I fucking kidding? I'll see you all with flannel and jeans. Yes. <laughs> okay, but okay, Nick. But boys look cute in that. Like, if if I wore that, you'd just be like, "Oh, she didn't dress up." But if you wear that, I'm like, "Oh, Nick's really cute tonight." So it's like a different. 
level. Like guys can get away with doing less and it still looks good. But girls, there's like a higher standard. And I realize that I like I succumb to that because it's super fun. But also it makes me angry. Right. I have a lot of feelings about this. But yeah. All right. But uh, Tia and I, I will get set. We'll, we'll put this to the test. I'll see you in two weeks wearing my uh, um, big dog sweater. Nick, um, no. Alternatively, I'll see you in two weeks with my Tasmanian devil with the backwards baseball cap. Nick, um, with his uh, arms it. crossed uh, next to Tweety Bird. Yeah. Um, Nick, we didn't say um, dress up like you were like living in 1996. We said dress up like a or Midwesterner. Did we? <laughs> I saw Captain Marvel. That's how people dressed. Um, all right. Alternatively, if any of you out there love love big dogs, uh, no no shame. Uh, I didn't say that it was bad. I just said it was from yeah. a different era. Um, yeah, true that. So okay, let's uh, let's get into this show. Uh, let's Are you sure th- we can keep talking about clothes? I like this. I mean, listen. In two weeks, in less than two weeks, Kara, I just want you to. I just want you to know. In two weeks' time, we will have hung out for three days straight, four days straight. So um, Sorry, we'll have all the, all the time in the world to talk about clothes and then show off sure? what clothes should work. Oh, thank God. Yes, okay. don't worry. I oh, expect... should I bring my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle boots? They glow in the dark. Yes, no, I'm bringing yes, them. Yes, yes, you must. Okay. Please. Right. And then we're all going to get custom Teenage Mutant Teetle Beetle shirts or something. Um, Tootin' Meenage Needle Teetles. Yes, they're going to do yes. that. <laughs> yes. I, I think that yes. that's what our next, tattoo that's what our next like, shirt should be. It should just be that. Right. Oh, my God. Um, okay, let's let's do the show. We got to do the first half of the show. <laughs> no, I want to talk about what a teenage mutant ninja teetle tattoo would look like. That would be cool. Like, what if you just got like a tiny version of their weapons crossed with like their color of bandana tying them together? Oh, I did it. I Done. made them not tacky. I was and gonna then say, Mike goes just to, little... Mike goes to Japan with a tattoo of weapons on his. Arm. Yeah, yeah, they're gonna really love that when I go to the bathhouse. <laughs> <laughs> the uh no you just get little miniature tiny turtles that have tiny little bandanas on them but they're actual turtle turtles actually i'm wearing a teenage mutant ninja turtles t-shirt right now what the hell turtles <laughs> <Yeah>. they're everywhere 